Jay's Four Questions is brought to you by the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. Through its impactful work and partnerships, the Federation touches every Jewish life in Los Angeles, Israel, and around the world. For more information, visit www.jewishla.org. This week, my guest is Alyssa Thomas Newborn, the groundbreaking rabbinit of the modern Orthodox congregation in Los Angeles, B'nai David Judea. We talk about her journey from being the daughter of a reform rabbi and a student at the Brentwood School to a leader in the modern Orthodox community, the legacy of women leaders throughout Jewish history, and that all of our answers lie deep in our traditions. It's so great to see you. It's so wonderful to see you as well. I have this conversation always with my friends who are rabbis uh, about um, what I should call them. I, I referenced actually in one of my early podcasts with Rabbi Ed Feinstein, um, which is one of the shoals I belong to, um, that uh, I was speaking to him in a, in, a, in a gathering and I called him Ed and uh, an older person came up to me afterwards very upset that I was disrespectful and I should have called him rabbi. Hmm. He doesn't have that take and most of my friends because I have a lot of friends who are rabbis but now I have somebody who has the the title of rabbinit <laughs> and I don't think most people know what that is so what should I call you <laughs> um, well I am certainly fine with you calling me Alyssa <laughs> okay um Rabbanit is actually a title that uh, we found was the right fit for our community at B'nai David. I am the Rabbanit at B'nai David. And uh, the title itself uh, evolved from, I graduated from Yeshivat Maharat, and uh, there the title was decided by uh, the hiring institution in partnership with the person being hired and the school. And at the time, we, we started with Moratenu, which means our teacher. Yep. Yeah, and there was a lot of publicity around that and, and energy and excitement and, and also a lot of opinions. So what we did at the time is we said, we're going to try out Moratenu for a year and see if that works. And uh, we'll get feedback after a year from our community and see if it's the right fit. And what we found was that Moratenu, as beautiful as a title as it was, was not the right fit. People were feeling like it was too long. They didn't know what it, they didn't recognize it. It wasn't a title that people were using so familiarly. So um, we, we opened it up to the community and discussed what would be the right title. And that's how we came to Rabbanit. Rabbanit is, uh, it has this connection, very familiar word. It's a word that's already existed. Uh, and it has this feminine side to it in that it has the sort of the, uh, the race that part, but it has this Rabbanit element that comes with um, sort of a recognition that there is a, a feminine part of the role that I'm playing. There are certain differences between what Rav Yosef, the rabbi with whom I work, what he does versus what I do. Rabbi Kineski. Yeah, right? Rabbi Kineski. So let's, let's talk so, about yeah. that for a second. Since this is a, this is a new concept, yeah. and for people who uh, don't even understand Orthodox Judaism completely, it's probably even a more of a new concept. So if uh, you're, you're at one of the most dynamic modern Orthodox congregations in North America, uh, for sure, I believe that. Um, if I was looking at all the things that you're responsible for and all your skills, and I was looking at a, a, a rabbi's responsibilities and skills, mm -hmm. where do they intersect and where, where, where do what you do, what is, what, what is limited for you? 
That's a great question. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of my work is is very, very similar. Um, so, you know, for example, pastoral, uh, life cycle events, um, teaching, sharing, teaching classes, giving dresho, giving sermons, um, serving the community in a pastoral and uh, rabbinic capacity as clergy, as spiritual leadership, that is very much a part of what the rabbinit is doing. Um, but the, the areas in which there is difference or limitation, as you said, has to do really with orthodox halachic practice. So it's actually less about uh, my job and more about the difference between men and women in orthodox practice. So for example, a woman is not going to be in our in our synagogue is not going to be leading mincha for regular services. Right. And so as a result, I'm not leading mincha. Uh, you know, Rabbi Kanevsky would potentially lead mincha. But you could lead mincha. In in a in a in a in a, a world very far away, you have the ability you you have the skills to lead mincha. You can't uh, do that in the world you live in right now. Meaning that I do have the training yeah, yes. and I know how to lead yes. davening, certainly, but not uh, not in within the orthodox halachic practice. Right. Would that be something that we would do? So you know, similar with with laning. So we're very grateful at Bene David. We have Shirat Chana, which is our women's tefillah group. Uh, so you know, the women get together and they uh, they have you know laning for a variety of times of year, or they have davening, and it's within uh, the you know. Orthodox halachic practice, um, so it, you know it, it certainly fits that, but it also you know it includes uh, it includes women doing things that they know how to do for women. Right. Um, so so yeah. So my my training in terms of answering halachic questions, uh, Jewish legal questions, um, serving the community pastorally and uh, ritually, yes, all is is the same, and the training is the same. Uh, the question really comes down to the difference in orthodoxy as opposed to the difference in uh, spiritual leadership right so um do you think that this is an or is this perceived as revolutionary or evolutionary oh interesting um like yeah even take it a step further I always, I ask, I have many questions. Maybe I'm just a boring person because I have many questions I <laughs> ask people all the time. And I always ask people, five years from now, I'm walking down the street and I bump into you. What are you doing, right? Like, where do you mm -hmm. want to be in five years? Five years from now, 10 years from now, will this role be different than it is now? Because it's it didn't exist before. Well, so I, I do think, you know, the, the evolutionary part of it is that there have always been women leaders yep. throughout Judaism there's yeah. and they have been serving spiritually and and you know halachically and pastorally. but they didn't have a, but they didn't have a sign that you know, they, they could hold in a hallway they didn't have a an, uh, an office with a name and the, I mean right you are there you know you are a, you know you are a revolutionary uh, for sure even though the process might be evolutionary and the question is do you see in the modern orthodox movement still more room where where your role could evolve where 5 years from now you would be you know leading a you know a service or a wedding or because Judaism has evolved right even the interpretations of what we do has evolved so since this is something that 10 years ago Lots of people would say would never happen. The question is, what happens five or ten years from now? Then, well, I think the parameters for me personally and for our for our shul for our synagogue is is within Orthodox halachic practice. So you know, as long as whatever it is is within the Orthodox structure of what the community um, and the halachic system is based in, then you know, then 
any area where there's room to grow, we we embrace. Right. But there are certain areas where, where there, it's just not possible. Where it doesn't end. right. Right. So I, I'm I'm always really fascinated. I, I'm really fascinated by people, and I'm really fascinated by their journeys. Now, when that's why you you're were, so good at this podcast. Yeah, when you were <laughs> when you were a little girl growing up in Southern California, um, with a mother who was who is a reform rabbi. Good. Would you have ever believed that you would be living the life that you're living right now? Uh, not in this way. <laughs> uh, not not in the way that it's played out. Um, I, you know, my mom, as you said, is that she's a reformed rabbi in cancer, Rabbi Kenner Didi Thomas, uh, and I'm, you know, incredibly blessed to have her as a role model and spiritual leader and and best friend, uh, and she she raised me and my brother to be people who very strongly believed in Torah Misenai and in like the, the, the Torah and halachic practice as being something that's incredibly real and meaningful in our lives. And the result of, of st that starting point uh, has certainly led me to this place. So, you know, I found as I grew up that the Orthodox community was actually the right fit for me in terms of my spiritual and even halachic practice because my mom raised us with a lot of observance. Um, and then, you know, I, I learned even more and felt that, you know, it was even the Orthodox community was my home. Um, but when I was a kid, yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely, you know, I, I felt this calling to be clergy and I didn't know what that would look like, but I definitely didn't know it would look like this. <laughs> so I, I, I ask all my guests one of my four questions, which is mm -hmm. um, what their Jewish aha moment was. Mm. So you probably had a couple aha moments because you had, I'm assuming you had a, an identity aha moment that you're mm -hmm. proud to be Jewish, but also then the aha moment that led you to be um, religious. Right. So I, you know, I, I, for me, it's sort of the question of evolutionary and revolutionary. I think it goes back to that as well. I feel like I've always been on this path. It's just, you know, it, it's evolved with time. So I've always, you know, had the same... Um, belief in God and Torah and mitzvot, uh, how that has evolved for me as a person and how it looks in my professional life uh, has certainly grown. But when I was 15, uh, I was I was going to Brentwood School, which is a private school here in LA. And uh, it, there were a series of tragedies that happened in our community where, um, you know, tragically someone died from suicide, another student's father passed away suddenly. Um, and my father, thank God, was okay, but he, he had a heart attack and he had quadruple bypass surgery. And it was all in the span of a month and I found myself in hospitals or at funerals and I, I looked around and saw the rabbis because you know Brentwood is pretty Jewish it's not yeah. a day school but we found ourselves um, you know turning to rabbis in our community in those times of, of great and incredible darkness and fear and sickness uh, looking for comfort and I, I felt this calling uh, actually while I was at one of the funerals um, this calling to be with people in those dark moments so one of my favorite texts is from Rabbi Nachman and he Rabbi Nachman I've Breslov, where he speaks about how, uh, you know, when Moshe 
was at Harsinai. Uh, you know, he's he's called to the Anon and the Arafel. He's called into that, the, the cloud, the darkness, the cloudiness where, you know, you wouldn't, that's not naturally where you go. And B'nai Israel, the children of Israel were, you know, hesitant to step into that place. Um, but that's where God was. That's where God revealed himself. And I find that so much of the holy work that I feel privileged to do is meeting people in those moments where we feel lost, we feel devastated, which especially this week in light of the tragedy that has happened in San Diego, um, you know, what, where do we turn in those moments? Uh, and that's really, for me, the starting point, the calling, the aha moment of where, where am I, where do I fit into this greater piece of God's puzzle was trying to be with people in those moments to support them and find their own connection to God and to others. So there's a Rav Avi Weiss, who is also the founder yes. of my school fantastic rabbi uh, and great role model, great friend. Um, he has a, a mashallah parable that he, uh, that he wrote when his mother died. And he talks about how uh, when a person walks into a dark room with furniture in it, the first time he or she walks into that dark room, they're going to stumble. They're going to run into the furniture and bump and feel un uncomfortable and scared. But every time we walk into that dark room again, we get a little more familiar with the space and, and can navigate. And part of what uh, we do in those moments when we experience great darkness and tragedy and pain uh, is we step into those rooms with each other and help each other navigate that space and that furniture. Um, and we, we sit with each other. And so I think that, you know, I, for me, the aha moment was I feel closest to God um, when I'm able to, uh, to sit with others in those moments and, uh, and to have others sit with me. Uh, and that that feels like an incredibly purposeful and, and holy place to be. And um, this is a, a complicated question, um, given your perspectives on things, but I ask this question too to everyone. So if you could ask God one question. You have mm. to kind of go with the with the concept. Um, what would that question be, Alyssa? Mm. I mean, my mind immediately goes to you know the the image of Moshe, sort of wanting to know God, wanting to see God, um, and so you know my my initial moment reaction, my gut reaction to your question is like a theodicy question of why, why is there, um, you know, struggle in the world and where, you know, where is your presence most obvious? Can we you know why not make it even more obvious for us? Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I know that so many of us find greater connection to each other and God in those moments. Um, but I, I, I think my my gut reaction to your question, just thinking off the top of my head, is is really a, you know, where are you in those moments and, and, and can you be more obvious for us? And I, um, you know, it comes to mind the the Eish Kodesh is uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Rebbe, and he's one of my absolute favorite writers and Rebbeim to turn to. Uh, and he really encouraged us to turn to God and say, why? Where are you? Show yourself to me. Uh, instead of, of passively um, waiting for that moment to actually actively cause God to step in by asking. It's a so, beautiful question you're asking. I, I, it's, it's something that I think about all the time, and I always, I always uh, when someone says they don't believe in God, it, it's, that's to me that's a several-hour conversation because I believe any person mm -hmm. 
who uh, is moral, ethical, and uh, and caring believes in God. They just don't. They just don't define it that way. So mm-hmm. I, my, I feel like part of my job as not a rabbinic leader uh, is to is to help them understand that they believe in something greater than themselves, and that is the concept of Hashem, and um, and then begin a, a different kind of a conversation with them about that. Um, we're living in a, a another one of those moments for women in, in uh, history where uh, in the Me Too movement and everything else where women are standing up and being counted. And you are a role model. Do you see yourself as a role model within the Jewish world? Thank you. Um, I, you know, I, I feel very blessed on a daily basis to be in a position where I'm serving a community where people do turn to me as a role model or to uh, to turn to as a, like a, a person to be in a laboratory with on how to figure out what their dreams are and how they see themselves in Judaism. Uh, so certainly when I interact with the women, the young girls, especially the teenage girls, uh, I, I, have, I find so often, it doesn't matter what age we're at, uh, all of us, not, you know, not just the Orthodox community, but certainly modern Orthodox women come to a point where we have to ask ourselves, you know, why am I here and why am I doing what I'm doing? Why is this the community that I want to be a part of? And the things that make me uncomfortable, the things that I struggle with, the questions I have, how do I respond to them? And a lot of people uh, find themselves really struggling in modern orthodoxy to bring together the tradition, you know, the the orthodoxy with the modernity, with their uh, their identities in this 2019 world. Um, And I think that having a woman to turn to who is grappling with that as well and who, uh, you know, has gone on her own journey uh, has been something that many people in my community have expressed gratitude for. But it's extraordinarily exciting and humbling for me to be able to have those conversations with people. Uh, You know, so... I, I think of uh, some of the girls in my community who have said, oh, you know, I'd love to be a Rebbenit when I grow up or, you know, uh, who who really have found that they they love learning Torah in a certain way. They love giving Divrei Torah. They love sharing their thoughts and their they love they love leaning. They love, uh, you know, connecting to, to the Torah and, and reading it and that, um, you know, for them to find their voices within their modern Orthodox community is incredibly meaningful. But I think that's really what we're all doing. We're all trying to find, no matter what denomination we're in, truly no matter what faith we're in, we're trying to find the answers to the real questions of, of why are we here? Why is this the place that I'm choosing to be? And for most of us at this point, saying, you know, it's because my parents were here before me ends up not being a sufficient answer. We each have to basically come up with our own answer for why Judaism matters to us. So in your, um, what's great about this conversation is, is you're making my questions so easy. Um, my, <laughs> my, my four questions you're making so easy, you're just kind of bringing them up. and. So um, the most important of the four questions for me is the reason I get up every morning in my current job, which is what's the greatest challenge facing us. And I think about the context of you, which is um, in your, your generation, you are, I mean, you're, you're unique in so many ways, and I'm sure we a, a million different ways that I don't even know because I don't know you that well. But you're unique in your journey where most people of your generation are moving away Mm-hmm. Um, um, even with reform rabbis as, as, as moms, you moved deeper in. And so from your perspective and your life experience, what would you say the greatest challenge facing the Jewish people is today? 
there are so many challenges that we face. There's also so many blessings that we face uh, and, and opportunities. Um, I guess the maybe what I'll what I'll how I'll answer is uh, perhaps the greatest challenge that I see on a, a frequent basis, um, and that maybe I think about most often uh, is is people feeling. Uh, feeling like the so what I remember when I was in high school like the English teachers saying you know so what's your so what like why why are you doing this um you know really feeling like whatever it is that they're doing is relevant to their lives um and that you know that can extend to Israel it can extend to uh you know Jewish halachic observance or not um it can extend to belief in God or not uh but but you know feeling that Judaism is uh, essential to their beings and enhancing everything that they do. Uh, I think that a lot of times when, especially in, um, in our modern world, you know, there's other outlets where we can get meaning and comfort and support. Why is, you know, this synagogue the place for me? Um, and I think that, you know, especially with, uh, you know, the millennial generation and others, uh, we, we want to feel mission driven. We want to feel that what we're showing up for isn't just something that we've inherited, but something that uh, makes our lives qualitatively better in every way. Um, so I think that communicating that across denominations to people and, and bringing, I mean, Judaism has so much beauty in it. That's why, you know, I, yeah. And that, that's why I drew closer and continue to draw closer. I can't even tell you, you know, that for me, when I when I learned Torah and I learned, you know, different commentaries, I, I, it's so exciting to me. It's Judaism is so vibrant. It has something to say about every topic and every single thing that happens in the world. There's somewhere we can turn and we can get it in our tradition. Uh, but I, I think that a lot of us, you know, Judaism maybe isn't the first stop. Or if it is, there's a lot of baggage that's come with it in a variety of forms. For sure. So, you know, I think responding to that and, and bringing out this true inspiration and beauty in it um, in, in a way that is exciting and uh, wants a, leaves us wanting more, it's already there. But I think for us to engage that is, it's for educators a, a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. So, no, I, um, And I think I always, among the other things I repeat all mm -hmm. the time, is that every... Uh, every uh, positive as a negative and every negative has a positive and when i talk about challenges they are all opportunities right definitely you can look at all the pro any problem in life and see it as a negative thing or you could think of it as i can tackle that problem then look what i've done you know all the people we're losing their opportunities to bring back and bring back the people that they, that they connected with you know, it's the it's the question about how we look at interfaith relationships. You know, the the reality is that's the majority of relationships within the Jewish people right now. So historically, what the Jewish community has said is um, goodbye. And um, you know, unless you're doing it this way, we won't let you in. And then we've lost those people. As opposed to saying, okay, let's figure out how we can bring you in, even if it's step by step by step by step, right? Mm -hmm. um, you it, it looks like on paper you went from 20 miles an hour to 80 miles an hour right but i my my guess is that's not exactly what happened right you had 
you might have had all these feelings, but you were going to the Brentwood School, and you know you you had friends who weren't Jewish, and you had friends that were Jewish but less Jewish than you, and you you know came to different realizations and had different epiphanies, and and one thing led to another, to another, to another. Why should we not think that somebody who we've quote unquote lost um, wouldn't be interested in, in mm. a, a similar journey, not the same journey, but a similar journey? Right, and we all have our own authentic journeys, and we have 100%. to do what's right for us. I was speaking to someone earlier today who called me and said, you know, he was interested in converting, and he's trying to figure out which denomination. And you have to find the place that's your home. Uh, but I mean, you said, you know, for me, like, wasn't you right? Like, it wasn't twenty to eighty. I think of when I was a kid. You know, my mom would stop us as we were driving, and you know, we'd be driving the car. She'd pull over and say, like, "Look at the trees. Do you see the wind is blowing?" Like, that's our relationship with God. And you, know, you don't always see God, but like, there is God's presence, and it's everywhere. And that that attitude is something that was very ingrained in me, and was was a blessing, a real bracha that she has given me. Must have been, uh, by the way, dangerous for the people driving behind her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did it in a safe way. You know, she had two young kids, um, but but. You know, the the awareness of that was something that she gave me and has always fueled me. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been very privileged to be in the different denominations. I've spent time in Reform and Conservative and Orthodox, and I went to Brandeis and got the taste of the different kinds of Jews who are out there and there's so much more and I've learned in Israel and, uh, and and seeing, you know, all the different paths that people can go on and find meaning and finding my own. I mean, there's nothing really quite as rewarding as finding your place, your place in this world. And when we say, you know, that God is Hamakom, God is the place, it's, it's finding God, it's finding uh, your purpose. So, you know, it's, it's a journey that we all have to go on to find. And I feel very grateful to have had the leaders and uh, mentors on mine. So since you, you uh, helped recalibrate me between challenge and opportunity, <laughs> um, what's the, I'll do instead of the difference, I'll say the similarities. What's the similarities between the Shabbat table you were at as a child and the Shabbat table you have today in your home? Mm. Well, it is definitely different and it is Similar. So you're. <laughs> so what's the similarity? <laughs> uh, the similarity is uh, the deep love of God, uh, the deep sense that um, we need to always carve out on a weekly, if not daily basis, if not multiple times a day, a space where we devote ourselves to prayer and to God and to family. Um, you know, I remember having to wear tights when I was a little girl going to reform synagogue. That was like very important. Eh, not so much anymore. You know, I don't have to wear tights. You know, there's like certain things that are certainly different. Um, but I, my husband and I, uh, you know, our, our home is filled with conversations about Torah and that's part of how we fell in love was around learning together. Um, and it's certainly a value that we both carry in our home and in, that we value in each other is being able to have real, real deep conversations about Torah and God. Uh, so I think that's probably the greatest similarity is, I mean, my, my parents got divorced when I was young, uh, but my dad is the same way. My dad is very spiritual. Everything comes back to God with my parents. And that's certainly who I am. And that's certainly who my husband so is. So I, I, there is another similarity. Mm -hmm. I've never, I've not been at either table, <laughs> but there is another similarity, which is you have food on the table. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite Jewish food memory. Oh, Jewish food. Uh, I guess if we're going to go Jewish food, my I mean, my grandma always used to make uh, matzo ball soup and my mom then made her matzo ball soup. And uh, this actually this 
you know, for whatever reason, I guess it was for Thanksgiving this year, my mother taught me how to make that, uh, that matzo ball soup, which, um, you know, it's, it's, it's it's very it's it's a it's amazing thing that food can do is transport you through time. It, it can, and I always mm-hmm. tell people the reason I talk about food incessantly on the podcast, and I have <laughs> as many chefs on the podcast as I have rabbis, um, is that uh, it's it's the great unifier. It's mm-hmm. also um, when you think about what we carry from our past. Um, the you know the the stain recipe card from our from our bubbies and and our grandparents that you know came from Eastern Europe and made that matzo ball soup or made that kneilach or made that you know a kugel and um, it it is something that is very visceral mm-hmm. um, and 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 a very much part of our peoplehood. Yeah, I mean even if you think about you know, Passover, when we're leaving, we take that food on our backs, right? Like, you know, we're carrying yeah. it with us. You're right. It's... Yeah. We should have taken different food, but that's a different <laughs> story. I can't, yeah. I can't rewrite uh, the, Passover, the Passover story, the Exodus story. But um, so I, I, I end my podcast with um, two things. One is an either-or question, uh, a game, and the other is a, a, a question of who you would have at your Shabbat table. So if you could mm-hmm. have five people at your Shabbat table, uh, and they could be f- from the past or they could be mm-hmm. people today, who would you, Alyssa, invite to your sh- your perfect Shabbat table? Oh, wow. And five people's a lot, too. That's a, you know, who are they bringing with them? I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> when, you get, when you start to get to four, you're going to think five's not a lot of people. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, definitely Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, uh, you know, how could we not? We'd be thrilled to have him. Also, my husband so deeply loves, uh, Moshe, you know, looking at him as someone who learned how to take, uh, the inability to speak, the inability to communicate anxiety, fear, stress, uh, and and overcome that in order to serve God and His people. You know, we talk about that all the time because you know we everyone in our in our lives we have those moments where it's hard to um, to overcome ourselves. So you know, for both because He's Moses and also uh, for that, I love to have Him at our table. Uh, and very differently, the next person who comes to mind is Mindy Kaling. Uh, okay. Who is, uh, you know, not only hilarious, but a very strong and uh, inspiring woman today, a comedian who um, is incredibly fashionable. And, you know, all the things that I can love about that as a Mindy girl and from Moses LA. together is a great image. <laughs> right? Um, but, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I think that she lives in Hancock Park, so it's not, you know... So, so impossible. Um, but yeah, I, I love, I love her writing and her, her, uh, how she role models and also how she's carved out a place for female comedians, uh, in, in her industry. Um, and I also just love the Mindy show. Okay. And, uh, so that's, those are two, um, you know, Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz, who's the the dean of my school, Yeshivat Maharat, okay. who I can have at my table, yeah. thank God. Uh, she is an inspiration and the first woman to do uh, the work that I'm doing yeah. through our, our school. Um, and Miriam, it would be great to have Miriam Hanavia, uh, Moses' uh-huh. sister. You get maybe a little interesting family dynamic, get to ask what really happened uh, in their feud at one point in the Torah with the Tzarat and uh, the leprosy be interesting to see the brother sister dynamic. Um, but also, uh, you know, to, 
to see a woman who from the, the very beginning has been a leader uh, in Judaism, a spiritual leader, a, um, a role model, and who also uh, had a, a great deal of humility uh, in that process because, you know, it's really, it's, it's not about Miriam. She was part of a, uh, a greater story that she saw herself in, and that's certainly how I, um, how I would look at it as well. Um, so who do I have? I have Moses, Miriam. Oh, Mindy you're right. Kaling. Mindy. It's a weird Sarah. table. Rabbi Sarah. You got one more. <laughs> and we're going so long on this, we're not going to be able to play our game anymore. But one, oh, no. one more. Um, one more. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, outside of my family, because I would assume my family would be a part of this to begin with. So I'll say, you know, I want my family there. Um, but separate from my family, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, it'd be interesting to have, uh, I'd really love to have the Ish Kodesh there. Rev, uh, so Rabbi Kalanimus Kalmi Shapira, who's the Warsaw Ghetto Rabbi I mentioned earlier, uh, he, you know, is a huge, a huge role model to me and also someone who I think uh, faced a great deal of darkness and was able to give people a connection to light and God and Torah. What I like about my podcast is I've asked this question of a number of guests and no one has invited me yet, but that's a different story. Oh. But um, before <laughs> I ask you, before Jason I Anderson. ask you my last question, um, my other ulterior motive for these podcasts is uh, lessons from my children. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, my son is is studying to become a rabbi. He's had the most interesting Jewish journey. He's an um, amazing person. Thank you. But w- what's one piece of advice you want to give him or anyone else that wants to become a rabbi? Lessons for our children or specifically for people who are choosing to become rabbis? Cho- people who are choosing to become rabbis, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I I think uh, what sustains us when we are serving uh, a a community that is inspiring and holy and also at sometimes, you know, a little stubborn um, is really is is feeling rooted in what it is that we're doing, that it is uh, we we are serving God or however you would communicate that in uh, whatever position you're in, um, feeling, finding for you why it is what you're, you're doing, why, why you feel compelled to devote your life to this work, to sacrifice for it, to serve others, to serve God in this way, and to have whatever that mission statement is for yourself, uh, be rejuvenating. So that anytime you feel tired or you feel, uh, you know, pushback, that you, you can have that touchstone to go back to and say, why am I doing this? This is why I'm doing this. This is why this matters to me. Um, and to have that guide us. Because I think when uh, we all, you know, everyone gets tired at some point or obstacles come up. Um, and sometimes we need people in our lives to remind us why we're doing what we're doing to. It might not be a phrase. It could be a person we turn to. Uh, but really sort of building a foundation that we can turn to and say, you know, when I when I need this, this is where I'm going to get my nourishment from. Okay, last question: Babka or arugula? Oh, hamantaschen. I'm not a babka or arugula person. All right, Hamant- you can have a unique answer. Um, Alyssa, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank um, you so much. You are a role model, and um, I deeply appreciate all that you're doing um, to further Torah and to uh, to teach us that anything is possible. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here and for being such an inspiration to us and leading our community, both in LA and far, far beyond it. It's a privilege to speak with you. Stay tuned for more questions, more interesting people, and more conversations about food. Jay's Four Questions is a co-production of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles and 131 Media. Our producer is Alana Weiner and technical director is Ariel Aboudi.